invite you to take that same Forms and Prayers book and turn to page 246. Page 246. I, I mentioned in the sermon this morning that we have been going through the Hadaburg Catechism together for quite some time, and we're going to be tonight looking at the fourth commandment, which is found on Lord, in Lord's Day 38. Uh, there is one question here, and we're going to confess the question and answer in a moment, but... Uh, Catechism, uh, as a reminder, was written a long time ago. We often think that things that are older are not very good, uh, but that's not true. Uh, The Catechism was written over 450 years ago, but uh, it is just as applicable today as the day it was written because it is a, a faithful summary of what we believe as God's people. Now, we don't say that it's equal to the Word of God. We know that it's written by men. Uh, But it is a faithful summary of what the Bible teaches. And I would encourage you, if if you've never read through the Heidelberg before, it probably would be a helpful thing for you to do. It's just a a wonderful reminder of what we believe about the core essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And not only doctrine, but, but how those things apply to us. And so when you read through the catechism, you will notice that many times the word comfort comes up. And The idea is that doctrine should comfort us. It should assure us. And hopefully you've been seeing that as we've been going through this together. But uh, tonight we turn our attention to the fourth commandment. I'm going to read the question and then together let's confess the answer. Question 103. What is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? First, that the gospel ministry and schools for it be maintained. And that especially on the festive day of rest... I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to the Lord publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. You know, we often have um, all kinds of questions about Sunday. We often have um, a list of questions, and usually it, it pertains to what can I do and what can't I do on Sunday? What is allowed? What is not allowed? Um, can I take a walk between services? Can I uh, go out for lunch? Can I run to the store? Can I watch TV? Uh, and, and there are many other questions that, that we might think are appropriate to ask and and many of the questions about what is appropriate on this day and what isn't appropriate on this day. I want you to notice though what the catechism does. In fact, I should better say I want you to notice what the catechism doesn't do. The catechism doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. Now we wish we had that maybe, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't give us uh, 10 things you can do and 10 things you can't do. Instead, I think very helpfully, the catechism focuses on the positive benefit of this day. And so what we would like to do is we would like to view the Lord's Day from a more positive perspective than a negative perspective. Uh, The catechism reminds us very helpfully that this is a day of rest. It's a day to rest physically. It's a day, in a sense, to rest spiritually. All of us need this. We, we live in a, a crazy, hectic world. We, we often feel very, very busy and tired and dragged out, and we wish we had a break from life. Well, God gives us a break. He, he gives us this day as a day of rest. 
Secondly, the catechism also reminds us that this is a day to learn from God's word. We, we talked about this this morning in, in Revelation 13, but it's, it's crucial for us to come together to hear what God's word teaches. Catechism also reminds us that this is a day to participate in corporate worship. Uh, we don't just stay home. If we can be in worship, we should make every effort to do so. Uh, and so rather than viewing this day as uh, uh, in some kind of legalistic way, rather than viewing this day as drudgery and misery and, ah, Sunday's here, we, we should instead see this day for the wonderful blessing that it is. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58, talks about calling the Sabbath a delight. This should be a delightful day for us. And I always remember, this is years ago, one of you saying to me, I think it was in a, a Bible study or a blast class or something, you, you said to me that, that your father would say to you on Saturday, it's not that we have to go to church tomorrow, it's that we get to go to church. It's a whole different perspective. And so our prayer should be, Lord, help us to see this day uh, for the wonderful blessing it is. We need it, God knows we need it, and we're thankful that he has given us this day of rest and this day of worship. We're gonna sing together number 152, a, a song that uh, talks about the Lord's Day safely through another week. There are four stanzas here. Um, you will know the tune. It's from the song, the hymn, For the Beauty of the Earth. We'll sing the four stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
Let's bow together before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of rest that you provide for us each week. Uh, Lord, you know that we need this day not only for our physical well-being, but also for our spiritual well-being. Uh, help us not to see this day as a, a day to check a box, a, a day of rules and regulations, but uh, Lord, help us to truly delight in this day. Help us to use this day for our benefit. Help us to use this day to bring glory to you. Uh, help us to use this day in such a way that you will help us to be an example to our children and our grandchildren that uh, this day is a delightful day for us. We thank you and we praise you for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christ, our advocate, whose death on the cross made propitiation for all of our sins, perfectly satisfying every demand of your holy justice. Lord, it is he who brought us out of guilt and into forgiveness, out of darkness and into light, out of rebellion and into your love, out of death and into life. How we praise you tonight for the wonder of your love for us in Christ. We pray this evening for your church throughout the world. Uh, Lord, your word tells us that we can expect the devil to fight against the church, to seek to devour and destroy the church. Often he uses godless governments, often he uses false teaching, often he uses wolves in sheep's clothing. Help us, Lord, to be prepared and equipped for these attacks. Give us the strength that we need to remain faithful to you. We pray especially for your under-shepherds, the elders of your church, that you would bless these men who you have called, that they would do what is necessary to protect your sheep. We pray for our children and for our young people as they navigate this world, as they seek to live their lives for Christ in the face of much opposition. We pray that from a young age you would pre prepare them for this battle. We pray that you would guard them from the schemes of the devil. We pray that they would walk with you all the days of their lives and that whatever you're calling for them, that you would use them for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray for the missionaries whom we support as well as the many missions causes that we support. Lord, we know that in each and every ministry there are certain challenges and frustrations. We pray that you would bless each one of these ministries with your grace and your spirit so that each one would keep the big picture in mind and that is bringing the gospel to this dark world. We pray for the work of Messiah's Reform Fellowship in New York City. We we pray for the witness and the ministry of this church that they would continue to be a light for the gospel, that they would continue to minister the love and the compassion of Christ to their community. Grant us your spirit tonight as we study your word. Uh, may we be humbled, may we be comforted as we unpack the covenant of grace this evening. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. We now give to Messiah's Reform Fellowship and that offering will now be taken.
Thank you, Joanne. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Our scripture reading tonight is uh, just one verse, and that's the verse that will set the tone for what we call the covenant of grace. Uh, This is our third week studying what we call covenant theology. Uh, The first week we looked at the covenant of redemption, which highlights the uh, the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the sake of our salvation. Uh, Last week we looked at the covenant of works, which... uh, wonderfully reminds us that Jesus did what Adam failed to do, that Jesus offered to God perfect obedience to all of his commands, and now through faith in him, Jesus' perfect righteousness, as incredible as this is, has been credited to us, to our accounts, so that God now sees us as if we had never sinned, as if we had never been sinners, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as as Christ was obedient. Now, now if you're a Christian, both of these, um, both the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works should be incredibly comforting to you, incredibly assuring to you, because you see, they are reminding you what God has done, what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all worked together in harmony to accomplish your redemption. And I pray that we would see the same thing tonight as we look at the covenant of grace, that that we will see the Lord's incredible, incredible favor toward us, a favor that, that none of us here tonight deserve. So Genesis 3, just verse 15, God says, and he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity, hatred, Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Does God owe you salvation? Does God owe you salvation? Is God obligated to save you from your sins? Is God obligated to save you from the judgment that your sins deserve? Some people think that. Some people think that if they just do enough, if they just work hard enough, that God will reward them. He will reward them with salvation and with eternal life. But, but the Bible is clear that that's not what we deserve. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you know these words, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. God doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't owe us forgiveness. The Canons of Dort, which is one of our doctrinal standards, says in the very first article, the very first thing the Canons of Dort says Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. God would have done no one an injustice if he had left me in my sin 
and condemned me for all eternity. Let that, let that sink in for just a moment. It would have been perfectly fair for God to, to leave me in my sin and to judge me forever and ever. That's what I deserve. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. The, the very next article in the Cans of Dort, in, in echoing the Bible, says this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and this is where the covenant of grace comes in tonight. This is, this is where we see and understand the, the marvelous grace that God shows us in Jesus Christ. Now before we get into this covenant, let, let me say, let me make a brief comment. Um, a number of you here tonight have grown up in Reformed churches. A number of you here tonight have, have never known a day you did not go to a Reformed church. And Reformed churches historically, traditionally, have taught what is called covenant theology. And so a lot of what we're looking at in this series is stuff you've probably heard before. You've heard about covenant theology. You've heard about the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. But, but maybe, maybe you've lost sight of how wonderful it is. Maybe you've lost sight of how amazing it is that God would, would reach down to you in the midst of your sin and make a covenant with you that, that you do not deserve. Most of you know that uh, the first several years of my life as a Christian were spent in non-reformed churches. And I appreciate much of what I was taught in those years. Um, there's a lot that we can learn from our non-reformed brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but when I started to grasp covenant theology, so much clicked for me. I, I began to read the Bible and, and study the Bible in an entirely different light when I began to understand covenant theology. And, and it wasn't just these new doctrinal truths that I was learning. It was... It was the tremendous comfort and peace that these doctrines gave me. All of that to say that I hope that this is what this study is doing for us. Maybe covenant theology is old hat to you. You've heard most of this. Maybe this is a refresher course for you. Maybe a lot of this is entirely new to you and you say, I never knew about the covenant of redemption. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey my prayer is that the Lord would use these truths to deepen our love for him, uh, to, to give us the peace that comes from resting, resting in the work that God has accomplished for us. And so tonight we're going to look at the covenant of grace. We're going we're to look at the same three basic questions we asked last week. First of all, what is the covenant of grace? Secondly, is the covenant of grace found in the Bible? And third, how does the covenant of grace benefit me? What is it? Is it biblical? And how does it benefit me? I think back to uh, what we looked at two weeks ago, the covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption is a covenant, children, that, that took place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It took place in eternity past, before the, the creation of the world. Well, the covenant of grace, which we're looking at tonight, is, is basically the outworking of the covenant of redemption in history, in time. 
You see, in the covenant of redemption, Jesus agreed to take on a human nature. He agreed to come to earth, live a perfect life, and die on the cross for all of the sins of those the Father gave him. That's exactly what Jesus did. Children, what do we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate Jesus becoming a man. What do we celebrate on Good Friday? We celebrate Jesus dying on the cross. What do we celebrate on Easter Sunday? We celebrate Jesus rising from the dead, conquering death and the grave. And of course, in his life, he he did what Adam failed to do, and he offered perfect obedience to all of God's commands. And now the covenant of grace is the, the outworking of what Jesus did for sinners like you and me. So the the covenant of redemption is this intra-Trinitarian covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The covenant of grace is the outworking of that covenant of redemption, the outworking of Jesus' work for us. A, A good definition of the covenant of grace comes from a book titled Sacred Bond. It's a really good book. I would recommend it to you. You'll find this definition in your sermon outlines It says the covenant of grace is the covenant between God and believers with their children in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ who merited their salvation by his obedience in the covenant of redemption. So that's the covenant of grace. Now, let's look at four things from that definition. First of all, the covenant of grace reminds us and this definition teaches us that the covenant of grace is not universal. God doesn't give salvation to all people. We're not, we're not universalists. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Now I know that this is very much contrary to the spirit of our day, very much contrary where, where people say every religion is legitimate, every religion leads to the same place, But that's not what the Bible tells us. God's saving grace is only for those who believe. Second, the second thing we see from this definition is that the blessings of the covenant of grace are received by faith alone. Children, it's a wonderful, wonderful blessing that you're growing up in the church. Wonderful, wonderful blessing that your parents take you to church on Sundays and and provide a a Christian education for you and and they take you to Sunday school and maybe you have family devotions at home. That's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. But children, never forget, you must believe in Jesus. You must receive him by faith. The covenant of grace reminds us that these blessings come not by works, not by who our parents are, but they come by faith alone. Third, the covenant of grace includes the children of believers. This affects how we view our children. Our children are not little pagans. Our children are part of God's covenant family. We don't view them as outsiders. We we view them as, as part of the covenant people of God. And it's on this basis, because they are part of the covenant people of God, that we witness many times throughout the year, we witness infants being baptized. Not because we believe the water washes away their sins. Not because we believe that baptism automatically saves them. But we give them the sign of the covenant because they are part of the covenant community. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision. 
in the New Testament is baptism. And then fourth, a fourth thing that comes out in this definition is that the blessings of the covenant of grace were merited for us, earned for us by Jesus Christ. These blessings don't come to us because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. Historically, theologians have said that for Jesus, the covenant of redemption was a covenant of works. In other words, Jesus had to earn righteousness and eternal life for us by his obedience. Because Adam failed to do it, right? We saw that last week. And so for Jesus, the covenant of redemption, which we looked at two weeks ago, was a covenant of works. And there were two aspects to his obedience. There there was what theologians call his active obedience, and there was what theologians call his passive obedience. Let me explain what that means. The active obedience of Christ was his, again, his perfect obedience to all of God's commands. Children, if you were here this morning, you remember we read from Matthew 22, and and Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I fail at that. You fail at that. But Jesus was perfectly obedient. Every day of his earthly life, he loved God with everything he had, and he loved his neighbor as himself. Not once did Jesus disobey God's law. That is his active obedience. The passive obedience of Christ refers to his suffering, his death on the cross. Now you hear the word passive and you might think of someone who is inactive, someone who who doesn't respond to anything or anyone who just kind of sits there. But it's better to think of that word passive as it relates to the word passion. The the Latin word passio, from which we get our English word passion, means suffering. Suffering. Jesus suffered for us. Not, Not just during what we call Passion Week, at the very end of his life, and on the cross, but but all throughout his earthly life, Jesus suffered. And and both of these, now, now this is not just theology for the sake of theology. Both of these are critical for your salvation. Jesus, through his active obedience, earned the righteousness you need to be in God's presence. And Jesus, through his passive obedience, paid the penalty for all of your sins. And so you can see how how both of these things are crucial, how both of these things are critical. And that's what Christ has done for us. And so that is the the covenant of grace. But the the second question is, is this even biblical? The four aspects of of the covenant of grace that we just looked at are those found in Scripture. It's one thing to define the covenant of grace it's one thing to say this is what you know this theologians taught in history and this is what this um, doctrinal statement in history teaches but but it's another thing entirely to say this is what the bible teaches and and always 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 we want to go back to scripture what does the word of god teach and so i want to lead you through these four points again and and i want us to see are these things found in scripture First of all, the covenant of grace is not universal. Genesis 3.15, the verse I read earlier, is often called 
the proto-evangelium. It, it, all that means is a Latin phrase that means the first gospel. The first good news in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. And you remember the story, children, you remember what happened. Adam and Eve have just sinned. They, they've just broken the covenant of works. They just ate from the tree that God told them not to eat from. They, they've just plunged the entire human race into sin. And God would have been, as the canons of Dort say, perfectly just to leave them in their sin. Perfectly just to, to condemn humanity for eternity. But that's not what God does. Instead, he, he comes to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and he promises them a savior. He promises them a deliverer. He promises to, to send one who will bruise the head of the serpent. In other words, he will save his people by defeating the devil. But there's something in this verse that shows us that this will not be a victory that is won for all people. There's something here that, that shows us that this is not a universal victory by Jesus for everyone who has ever lived. If you look at the verse again, you'll notice that God makes a very clear distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's a demarcation, there's a, a division, there's a line between the church and the world. And the very clear implication of that is that not all people will be delivered by the Savior. Not all people will be saved. Other passages of the Bible make that clear as well. Matthew 24, Jesus says that the final judgment, he will, he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And you remember what he says in Matthew 24. He says the sheep will go to eternal life and the goats will go to eternal punishment, eternal destruction, eternal judgment. Revelation 20 tells us that those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. There are many other passages we could look at, but, but the Bible is clear that God's saving grace is not for all people. It's only for those who believe. This, of course, fuels our mission activity. It, it fuels our desire to be witnesses for Christ in our communities and in our places of work and at school and neighborhoods. It, it reminds us that, that not all people will be saved. No one will be saved apart from Jesus. And so that's the first part of the covenant of grace that the Bible very clearly teaches, that this is not a universal covenant for all people. Secondly, the blessings of the covenant of grace are received by faith alone. Is that biblical? I just read a, uh, I, I don't even know what church this is, but there's a, a church or a denomination or something that has recently come out, and, and I saw this article very briefly yesterday, and, and the pastor said, we no longer believe that justification is by faith alone. He said, we're, we're willing to be challenged on this and we're willing to be taught on this, but, but our reading of Scripture tells us that, that justification is by faith and obedience. That you cannot hope to go to heaven without somehow contributing your good works. Well, if you have your Bible, go for a moment to Romans chapter 3. We're going to we're going to look at a few places that I want to drive this home to you. And, and I think this is going to become more popular in our day, that we're going to hear more and more uh, church leaders even saying that, 
justification by faith alone is, is not biblical. Romans chapter 3. Notice verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Notice the next five words. To be received by faith. You receive it by faith, by faith alone. Now go to Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. A few books to the right of Romans, Galatians chapter 3. And notice verse 10. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under curse. Paul says if you want to go that route, you're cursed. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And I would, I would urge you or encourage you to remember what we looked at back in January for our 25th anniversary as a church. We, we looked at the five solas. One of them was sola fide, faith alone. Faith is the only, the alone instrument by which we receive the blessings of the covenant of grace. Third, the covenant of grace, our definition says, includes the children of believers. Is that biblical? Throughout history, uh, a question has been hotly debated, and, and maybe you've debated people on this question before. Does God include our children in his covenant of grace? Historically, the Reformed Church and covenant theology has answered that question with a yes. Yes, God includes our children in his covenant community. This isn't just our tradition. This, this isn't just our, uh, our history. This is biblical there's a certain slogan that if you've read through your Bible before, there's a certain slogan in Scripture that, that comes up again and again. It's, it's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. And, and when I say this, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. God says in Scripture, Old and New Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's that, that covenant relationship with God and his people. Ezekiel 14, verse 11, they will be my people, I will be their God. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Same thing in Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 11, Hebrews 8, Revelation 21. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just, I will be your God and you will be my people. The Bible also tells us in no uncertain terms that our children are also part of this covenant relationship. Children, if you are in a Christian home, I I don't really care if you're one year old or 15 years old, you are part of God's covenant family. And there are two passages that we want to look at. Take your Bible and now go to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, verse 7. God is speaking to Abraham. 
And he says in Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's not just Abraham. It's Abraham and his descendants. Very important that we understand this. Now go to Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, uh, Peter is preaching a sermon. We come to uh, verse 37. Peter has finished his sermon, and notice what happens. Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is covenantal language. And and the people listening to Peter preach that day, the Jews listening to him preach would have understood it exactly that way. That this is covenantal language. There's a fourth thing that we talked about in this definition. And that is the blessings of the covenant of grace are merited for us by Jesus. By Jesus. Back to Genesis 3.15, if you, if you look at the language there, you'll, you'll notice that God is already giving us a hint about the passive obedience of Jesus. He's giving us a hint in the very first promise of the gospel that Jesus will come as a suffering deliverer, a suffering savior. Notice that that God says that this Savior will bruise the serpent's head and that the serpent will bruise the Savior's heel. Now, now bruises are usually fairly minor injuries. If if you've ever been underneath something before and stood up quickly and you you hit your head, you get a bruise there, you you know it can be painful for a few days, but but it's not the worst thing that could happen to you. Or maybe you've, you've walked through the kitchen before or walked through the dining room and you, you stub your toe on the kitchen table. Ouch, it hurts. But it's not the worst thing that can happen to you. After a couple days, you, you won't remember it anymore. But in that day, it, it was different. In that day, that, that phrase, bruising the head or bruising the heel, was a figure of speech. And it meant death. It meant defeat and destruction. And and so already here we have this hint that Jesus will suffer. Now, yes, he he will deal a death blow to the serpent. And it's way worse to have a bruise on your head than it is on your heel. But he will deal a death blow to the serpent, but he himself will suffer. And children, that's what he did for you. He suffered all throughout his earthly life, and especially when he hung upon the cross. And there are many other passages in the Bible that that refer us to the fact that Jesus suffered in his passive obedience. Isaiah 53 is probably the best Old Testament one. 
Uh, the New Testament is filled with them. Hebrews 9.26 says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But it's not just his passive obedience. It's not just his suffering. There's also great scriptural evidence for the active obedience of Jesus. Matthew 3 says that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Romans 5 says that by the one man's obedience, meaning the obedience of Christ, the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus knew no sin, meaning he was perfectly righteous. And so you put all of this together and the Bible makes a, I believe, an airtight case for the covenant of grace. It's also taught in our Reformed Confessions. Uh, Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism says that God began to proclaim the gospel in paradise, a reference to to Genesis 3.15. Question 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism, should infants also be baptized? Here's the answer. Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. The point is, brothers and sisters, the covenant of grace is biblical. It's confessional. It's, it's what our Reformed churches have taught historically. But there's one final question. I've, I've thrown a lot at you tonight, a lot of information. It's not just for your head. The third question is, okay, it's, it's biblical. I get that. I see what Scripture says. But how am I benefited by this? Well, the obvious answer, of course, is that in the covenant of grace, we receive all the, the spiritual benefits that have been won for us by Jesus. Everything he did for us comes to us through the the covenant of grace. But there's three more things I, I want you to consider briefly tonight. And that is, first of all, the covenant of grace helps us as we read our Bibles. What I mean by this is that the covenant of grace tells us that there is one main theme in the Bible. The Bible is not a disconnected group of stories. The Bible has one main theme from Genesis to Revelation, and that is God redeeming you, his people, through the work of his son. And so as you read your Bible, and and again, this this is how my Bible came alive to me when I began to understand this, as you read your Bible, you can trace that theme again and again and again. Whether you're in Genesis or Judges or Isaiah or Malachi or Matthew or Acts or Revelation, you can trace that theme over and over. The Bible is one book with one story. And the covenant of grace helps us to see that there are not two plans of salvation. It wasn't by works in the Old Testament and by faith in the New Testament. Salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone. Abraham was justified in the same way that we are justified, by faith alone. And so understanding the covenant of grace helps you to to read your Bible, helps you to understand your Bible. It helps you to, to trace this great thread of redemption all throughout your Bible. 
Secondly, though, the covenant of grace humbles us. We, we should be the most humble people on the face of the earth. The covenant of grace reminds us that there's nothing that I have done to merit or earn my salvation. We're not in a covenant of works, thankfully. If we were, we're, we're all in big, big trouble. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works for us so that we might receive the covenant of grace. It's not about me. It's not about what I've done. It's about what Jesus has done for me. And so we are humbled by that, aren't we? And then third, the covenant of grace comforts us. I'm thankful I'm not under the covenant of works. I'm thankful that, that I don't have to earn my way to heaven because I would have zero hope. I struggle, I stumble, I fall. And I would assume all of you here tonight can relate to that. Thankfully, we don't relate to God on the basis of our performance. We relate to God on the basis of Jesus' performance for us. And so the covenant of grace, just like the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works, is a beautiful doctrine. It really is. And I pray that for all of us here this evening, we would rejoice in these truths and rejoice in what God, our Redeemer, has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for instructing us from your word. Your word is truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would comfort and assure us through these truths. We pray that if there are any here tonight or any watching online who are trying to relate to you on the basis of the covenant of works, that they would see their sin, they would recognize their utter inability to make themselves acceptable to you and that they would run to Jesus and find in him the perfect Savior for all of their sins. May we give you praise for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.